Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. We have 18 million Americans with shopping addictions, and I was one of them. Mm -hmm. And you cannot stop that unless you get to the core. And the core of that is overconsumption. Mm -hmm. The problem is we have too much stuff. We need to take responsibility for that. If we just think about how different it was with the amount of items we have in our home from 60 years ago to now, it's insane. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Welcome to the very end of June. Crazy, flying by. How'd we get here? We don't know. It's about to be July though, the height of summer. Ooh, I love it. Berries and swimming in creeks and swimming in pools and swimming in the ocean. Can you tell that I love swimming? I hope everyone is having so much summer fun. Today is just me introducing this episode. My mom is gallivanting around Europe with my father and my brother. So, We'll let them do that, and I will just have a quick little intro to this replay episode that, if you've already heard it, you know it's a really good one, totally worth a re-listen, speaking from experience. This is episode number 86 with Danielle Alvarado from Sustainably Kind Living, and we left in the original intro and everything, so you're going to love hearing from her again. A couple of things really quickly before we get going. We want to hear from you guys. We love our voicemail. 443-459-1950. We want to hear from you about maybe your upcoming cookouts, 4th of July celebration, if you celebrate family gatherings, reunions, summer camp, what have you, and how you are maybe thinking about things from a lower waste perspective and maybe using less plastic because... It's almost July, which you know what that means, plastic-free July, which is something that we participate in every year. And by participate, I mean, just think about it all the time during July. (laughs) And there is a website and an organization. It's called plasticfreejuly.org. There is a Instagram handle, Plastic Free July. It's all very easy to find. It's just a movement where people try to not use any plastic in July. There's a ton of great resources on the website and you can register and sign up for the newsletter and have guidance and stuff like that. But really, you also don't have to do all that and you just sort of not use plastic in July. But following along and connecting with other people who are also doing it is really inspiring and fun. So some quick ideas about how to decrease waste this summer when you're 
picnicking. It's not that much extra work to like bring real plates and utensils, cloth napkins. It's also like way nicer. Feels fancy. So there's that. For treats, when you're packing treats, try thinking about alternatives to processed foods that come in like pre-packaged bags. For example, if you have like crackers and cheese, you can sort of like put those in paper bags or parchment paper. We like wrapping things in parchment paper a lot or little Tupperwares and so easy to bring in the car in a little cooler bag. Fruit comes in its own packaging. Definitely shopping local when possible at farmer's markets. And a lot of decorations and things we might think we need for events and gatherings, we can really forego them and they aren't missed. We can even replace them with more fun, better stuff <laughs> like hand-gathered flowers or you can make cool garlands out of paper and stuff if you really feel like you need garlands. Balloons, they're fun. We don't really need them. And balloons are a lot more wasteful than we think that they are. Red, white, and blue festive colors like strawberries and blueberries with cream, you know, on top of a little shortcake. So fun. The idea is just to slow down, give it some thought, especially with these summer fun gatherings and call us. Let us know how you're doing. 443-459-1950. So on to the episode. Even though my mom is offline for now, we are excited to bring back this episode with Danielle from Sustainably Kind Living. She was speaking to us from her home in Italy at the time, she has since moved. We always enjoy the perspective that Americans living abroad bring to the conversation. And we thought that this one was definitely worth another listen. And coincidentally, with my mom being in Europe at the present moment, that makes sense as well. So we'll both be back next week with another great interview. And in the meantime, please enjoy. story of when I was in my early 20s in college and I went to Europe and visited my pen pal who was Dutch and she was also in college in in Holland and so I went to see her and it was such an amazing thing for me to go and see how other young people were living in that way in Europe first of all there was no campus she went to school and I believe it was Rotterdam, if I remember correctly. <laughs> and the school was not concentrated in one campus. So she had a little tiny flat and she had a little Bunsen burner stove where she made her tea and she heated up her little soup and this just tiny little room, a tiny little stack of clothes and a box by the bed, a little bookshelf, a little desk. And she went home on weekends and her mother baked bread for her to take back that she would eat on all week. And her mother would bake her one loaf of bread. And so she ate things like peanut butter and she would buy a can of soup or something. And this is how she lived and studied. It was very different from the way I, I was living in college where we had a dorm and we had a dining, dining room hall. and yeah. all the sports and the clubs and all this sort of thing. So it really set up for me a stark contrast to the lifestyle as a young adult. And I just remember that. I remember being very struck by that. It probably affects me to this day. Did you have any feeling like, oh, I want to live like that or that'd be cool? Or were you just like, whoa, this is different? I was kind of in awe. Yeah. Do you know that she could pull it off and that it seemed just perfectly fine. She had plenty of everything. Yeah. You know, one loaf of bread and some sort of spread and cheese for the week mm -hmm. and her tea and her soup and her little bed and all that was just fine. And it was all about her studies. 
so perplexing. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Just study it. <laughs> I'm sure she had friends and so forth. I mean, yeah, yeah. A long time ago. And I think she even introduced me to some of her friends. And of course, nobody had cars. They all were on their bikes yeah. and they walked everywhere. I'm truly envious of that sort of thing. Like I want that. Now, this was in the 70s. Yeah. I don't know that it's changed that much. I don't know. I can relate. I have a similar experience of I have lived in France and I unfortunately didn't get all the way to that place. I guess I only had one suitcase of clothes with me, but I still had a couple of shelves I can remember in my little apartment of clothes that I brought from America, never wore, packed them back up and brought them back. Mm -hmm. And of course, while I was there, because I was in France, I would buy new clothes. So I still had too many things when I was in France, but I was in awe at the way that when I would visit my friends' apartments, how they lived. I also babysat and tutored a lot in France and just the houses and how the families would operate in just smaller areas and with less stuff. And the roads were narrower and the cars were smaller and the grocery stores were smaller and there were less options for everything, but it was just more satisfying. I don't know, something about that European sense of being able to do with less Mm -hmm. Being slightly more community minded and as if you are part of a whole has really struck me and always stuck with me. There's many parts of me that are like, oh, that's the best way. Obviously, we've even discussed on this podcast how, you know, there's all sides to everything. But I will say this conversation that we are introducing. Yes. Uh, we get into some of that and it, it did make me also miss my European minimal lifestyle. And I just find it so interesting. You might want to mention why you were there. You were working in France. Yeah. So I was teaching English in the French schools. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was only 2014, 2015. So it wasn't that long ago. Although now it's feeling like it was longer ago. But, you know, the schools I was with, I was working at were out in the country and no iPads. I mean, teachers didn't really even have computers. And Something that struck me about the schools there was it's mostly natural light. Like a lot of the schools that I worked at, like didn't even turn the lights on all day because they had these big, beautiful windows and they would have enough light to learn by. And I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. I don't know like why they did that to save energy or money or what. But I do know that like fluorescent light always gave me headaches in school and kind of made me miserable. So just little things like that, that I'm just like, oh, this is so great. Something else just occurred to me that visit with my Dutch pen pal the whole idea of a pen pal. I know. <laughs> I thought of that when you started yeah. talking about it. Like, I went to visit my pen pal in Holland and I was like, oh, yeah, that's a sweet idea. Which reminds me, we do have pen pals in the Almanac. We do. That was so fun. Yeah, I just wrote my pen pal a letter today. Yeah. My pen pal's in France. Really? Of course. Oh, so. <laughs> so. Let's get into today's episode. Why are we talking about Europe? We're talking about Europe because Danielle Alvarado, who is our guest today, currently lives in Europe and at the time of this conversation was living in Italy in a tiny town. She describes it so sweet in a tiny apartment with her kids and her family and just has such specific ways of living a minimal, sustainable life. Now, I will note that since this conversation was recorded, she has since moved to Cyprus and she tells a story on her Instagram. On her Instagram, she is sustainably kind living. And she's a great follow if you're into sustainability. And we definitely recommend following her and her community. And particularly, I loved her whole like move to Cyprus and like why she went there from Italy. Danielle Alvarado is the creator and founder of Sustainably Kind Living, where they believe that life is better when they work together as a collective. 
They believe in community, connection, sharing in the ups and downs of life, and lifting each other up. Sustainably Kind Living is a judgment-free and fun space to learn all about starting your sustainable journey. We love talking to Danielle. Something that she said particularly struck me, and I've talked about it a lot, but I've yet to actually do it, so I'm going to talk about it again. She says that every time she brings anything new into the house, she sells something that she already has. Instead of just giving things away, she goes through the trouble to sell something because, in my opinion, selling things online is actually really annoying and it takes a lot of steps mm-hmm. to take a picture of it. You have to post it. You have to you know, ship it, whatever. But in that, in those multi-steps and that extra work, you're kind of putting that intention behind you know, you're thinking, do I really want to bring this thing into my house? So that really made an impression on me. And I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> haven't done it yet. Something that really struck me about this interview was her conversation with garment workers when she was in Southeast Asia. I thought that was very, very eye-opening that she was actually talking to the people on the ground doing these things. And easy for us to talk about the hardships and to know about them and try to open people's eyes. But it's quite another thing to talk directly to these people and see what their lives are like. So I thought yeah, that was it's amazing. really, really valuable. So Danielle really brings a really wide breadth of experience. And she is such a warm, open heart and kind, welcoming personality. So we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here's Danielle. I am Danielle and I run Sustainably Kind Living. It's a website, a social media, Pinterest, all that good stuff. And the main goal of it is to just make sustainable living accessible to everybody, size, culture, everything. And that is like my driving passion. And how I got here is a bit of a journey. Come from Chicago, Illinois, and I was raised on McDonald's and happy meals and all that good stuff from when we were kids. I didn't really even know there was a world beyond that until I got into about my 20s. And I left Chicago and I joined the military, the U.S. Navy. I was an air crew woman and I flew all around and I got to meet a lot of cool people, see a lot of cool things. And during that time, I learned about nutrition and just about activism in different ways with charities and things like that. And it started to drive me. I felt at home there. And after my service was over, about six years later, I decided to embark on a little journey of my own where I went to Southeast Asia and I just lived in different countries and met different people. And I didn't expect anything. When I had gone to Southeast Asia, I at that time was vegan. I'm not anymore, but at that time I was. And my main goal there was to fight for the elephant and stop elephant riding and all this stuff was very, very important. And I volunteered for all of that. But also during that time, I had met a ton of garment workers. I did not know that it was a big deal. In my mind, I always thought, oh, the fashion is lowered price because they finally figured it out. They finally just figured out how to make fashion affordable because growing up, we couldn't afford everything and everything was so expensive. So when I hit 21, 22 and Forever 21 was there, I was like, this is great. Oh yeah. Yes. <laughs> and about what year was this that you were in Thailand? I was 26. So okay. eight okay. or nine years ago. And I met these women and children. 
and I heard their stories. A very few of them spoke English, but we were able to to talk fairly well with each other. I had a translator named Buta at the time. He's an amazing man. And I was just heartbroken. And I was like, you know what? This sounds like something that my attention more so than anything else. So after this trip, I went to Europe and I was just studying abroad in Austria and Paris. And during that time, I met my husband in Italy and we fell in love very, very quickly. And I had all these travel plans for India and I was going to do all these things. And then I got pregnant with twins. Oh my gosh. Three months. Wow. Within three months of meeting him. Wow. <laughs> A message from the universe. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Everyone says that too. Because I was the one who never wanted kids. I was like, no way. Once that test turned, I was like, well, there it is. That's okay. Time to slow down. I, without even a second thought, I was actually living in Hawaii at this time because of the military. I had a beautiful house in Hawaii with my friends. We were living the life, but I just left it all. Car, surfboards, clothes, everything. They shipped a few boxes over to me, but I was like, I'm never going to fit in that stuff again. You guys have a good time. (laughs) And it was true. So they sent me over just a few things to survive with. And I moved to Italy. And Italy was uh, really, really hard for me. I didn't have any friends. All I had was Martin and I was pregnant. And then when I had the babies, I went through a really hard depression for a long time. I didn't want to leave the apartment and I was just breastfeeding from morning to night. And I needed to find something to get my creativity out, my writing out. I've always loved to write and to help. And I think I just assumed that when I became a mother, that would be it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you love to help, you love to nourish, you love to do all these things. But for some reason, I needed more. I, I thought I was a bad person. I was like, what is wrong with me? But I just had more in my, I guess you could say heart to give. Like I had more than just this. And I'm so thankful for realizing that so soon when the boys were four months old, I started a blog and it was just like a little sharing blog, nothing big, but little by little. And the more I kept getting out of the house, thank goodness, I started to see how beautiful this village was that we lived in. We live in a really small little village. Everyone knows each other. My husband's like the mayor. He's a police officer and everyone knows him. It's so cute. And I just saw just these beautiful real life images of sustainability and nobody had dryers. Everybody was hanging their clothes out their window. And if it rained, it rained. Nobody cried about it. Yeah. Like you just, you do it the next day. You know what I mean? And everyone was making their own bread and their own cakes. And whenever I would go to a friend's house, there was no packaged foods. In front of me, she would knead the dough with her own hands, wait an hour for it to rise. And then we would create it together. Like, wow, this is, a fantastic way to live. And I've never had this before. So I started writing about that little by little. I kind of left the blog alone. It was too hard for me to do social media and the website with my, you know, two twin boys. So I took to social media and I would just write captions every day about sustainable living and how beautiful it was here. I made a wonderful community. And about last year, I decided to go all in My children finally started their kindergarten. And I was like, I got the time, let's do this. And I invested a lot of time and money. And we hire writers and ebook creators and website designers, everything. And we created this new website, a new platform. And it's been a dream come true. I learn more than I teach, that's for sure. I learn something every day. And it's so wonderful. And it's also built me a beautiful community in my own neighborhood. People here are always like, oh, we've seen you do this. And then I'm able to, you know, make friends with local farmers and local shopkeepers. And it's been beyond my wildest dreams. I had never imagined 
I would be here doing this. So it's very, very cool. That's so wonderful. And I also love the way that you came into it, especially with the visit with your friend and the making bread and sort of like glimpses of sometimes when we talk about like the old world, That's like kind of yeah. before like modernization of stuff, not necessarily that it's all about rejecting modern technology and going back and everything, but there's something right. really really beautiful about that. And there's like, there are these little pockets still in the world that still live that way. And so I'm curious, the, the way that, that you told that story that really stood out as an aha moment, but was that really the first time that you'd experienced that? And do you think that it was because of this new life phase that you were in? Or do you think it was kind of a slow buildup of lots of things? That's a really good question. So my grandmother, my mother's mother was a wonderful cook just wonderful. Every Christmas and Thanksgiving, she would create so many things. But sadly, I never saw it because for some reason in our family, we would never be part of the cooking. Mm -hmm. It was her sake. So right. she wouldn't really bring us into it. Yeah. So what I found so magical here was that it was part of everything. My friend who is the wonderful crafter and bread maker, I just adore her. She's taught me everything I know with cooking and everything. She has five children. And whenever we come over there, I'm amazed because they're the ones eating the bread with her and they're making the cookies and they're making the everything. And it's yeah. so, they even make their own yogurt. And I'm just sitting there like, I feel so silly, yes. <laughs> you know, forever even buying any of this stuff. And one day I was just sitting at home and my husband's mother came over and she just had a bread maker. And she's like, I thought you would just like this. Oh. I was like, wow. <laughs> really nice of you. And then I just started making bread with this amazing machine that must have been 50 to 60 years old. I mean, this wow. Is wow. Yeah. Very, very cool. So that's just the way it is. Yeah. What was the old bread maker? I remember the one from the 90s that you put everything in and all the ingredients and it just turned it on and it did all the kneading and everything. Was this like that? Something from earlier? Very, very similar. It's not as pretty as I would say the 90s one. It's a little bit older, mm -hmm. but it's the same mechanism. So it's like a big tin thing in the middle and then you put in the oil, whatever you need. The ingredients are all on the back of the flour packages over here for the bread making. It takes about four hours and then you have your bread. That's cool. Yeah. I had one of those in the 90s when I was a young mom and um, didn't feel like I had time to like knead the bread and let it rise and everything. That was a real treat. Such a treat, right? Yeah. I really like it. <laughs> then you get homemade bread and it's kind of a compromise. <laughs> it's a good gateway to like all of that. To someday when you have time to knead it and wait and all that. So I love those yeah, yeah, things. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, so that is such a lovely story about how your, your eyes were sort of open to like this other way of life. So you began cooking and you began making things. What was next? What came after this sort of epiphany for you? So with the cooking part, because I was so enamored by it, yeah. I was so mind blown that I could make bread and I could do anything. The first thing I did was I actually created a recipe blog. I'm still pretty well known for it, but I stopped doing it because it was so overwhelming. But I am really happy that I did it in the beginning because I felt like it honed my skills really well. The first website that I had was a plant-based website. So everything I did was plant-based and it was all just how to make the processed food at home. You don't need processed stuff. You could just make it at home with vegetables or flour. I never used anything processed or anything like that. So it was all plants, no funny stuff. And that was really cool for me because I learned a lot. I'd gone from zero to a hundred. Yeah. I knew nothing. I didn't even know how to cut an onion or peel garlic. It was crazy. Wow. Yeah. When I invest in something, I really invest in something. I must've read like 50 recipe books and tried everything. And 
My husband's like, you're going crazy. I was like, I love it. But the thing with recipes, if you don't have a team and if you're a mom with two littles, I didn't have my mom here, nobody. And I was like, I'm going crazy. (laughs) And I actually, I never wanted to look at food ever again. I was like, I need to stop this. And I took about, I would say six months off. And that's when I just started asking myself, you know, what do you really want to do? And little by little, because of that garment workers I had met, I was talking to, I was like, that's it. Like the voice kept calling me, like that's Mm -hmm. what you need to do. I feel like sometimes the sustainable fashion niche gets like a bad, like people don't take it seriously too much because I don't realize how big of a deal it is. Sometimes I think people are like, oh, another fashion blogger. I'm like, no, no. Like I'm trying to stop you from shopping. I'm trying to not push you into shopping. It's almost like the opposite. And getting past that is pretty hard, but I feel like we're almost there. I feel like people are finally starting to get it because it's such a big deal. It's also tricky to to be able to sidestep the conversation that the answer is like ethical consumerism or buying this expensive thing over here. Yeah. That can be part of it, you know, like if you can totally. participate in that way. But it's unfortunate that sometimes that's where it goes immediately. And then it sometimes shuts down because not everyone can be a part of that. And so it is, like you said, it's so big and deep and there's like so many like layers to it and yeah. we could be peeling it yeah. apart all day. And you're right. It's something that's so easy for us, especially as Westerners, to just like not think about because totally. it's very out of sight, out of mind. I want to know what your conversation with those women was like. What did they tell you that, you know, really struck you, really got your attention and really sort of changed your direction? I would say the biggest one that got to me was when a mother was talking about her children Mm-hmm. And how one of her little girls was getting raped by one of the like head managers. Oh my and she, gosh. And, yeah, that killed me. And she was showing me there is a, it's a very small place and there's like a little shed or something like in the distance. She like cursed the shed and she said that that was the shed where it happened. And to me, that was everything. I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is insane. And I know that Southeast Asia is already well known for pedophiles from the Western countries coming there because it's so easy mm-hmm. and then playing the white savior card, you know, being like, oh, I'm going to give you money, blah, blah, blah. And then taking advantage of. And this also happens, of course, with the garment workers as well. So this was a garment worker who had to have her child at work. You hear about that a lot. Yes. Oh, that happens all the time. Because there's yeah. no daycare. So they take him in there. Yeah. That's a typical story. Oh my gosh. How, yeah. That's just staggering. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever been to Southeast Asia, but If you go to like the main part, like the tourist parts, it's all children. They're asking you to purchase things and it Mm -hmm. could be stickers. It could be whatever. As Westerners, when we see this, we're thinking, oh, that's cute. Instead of thinking, oh, that's slavery. That kid is working. That kid's not playing. That kid's working. Yeah. And it's the same thing, you know, with, I would say Mexico too. When I was little and I'd go to Mexico, there'd be a bunch of kids and they would be selling things and I just brushed it off thinking, oh, that's silly. You know, maybe they're having a garage sale. Of course, my brain could not fathom that they're working. For me, the kids was the biggest thing. And then the more I talked and the more I researched, I'm a very strong feminist as well. That was also like, wow. I mean, they Mm -hmm. take such advantage of us. I mean, such advantage. It's unbelievable. And they take more advantage of you if you're a mother. And that's just heartbreaking. It's just so sad. I wish there were more people that are able to tell those stories from the inside like you did. Oh, yeah. And really kind of just reveal to people what the reality is. And translate not only in language, but like you're able to kind of translate the experience and sort of the emotional. Because it's hard. Even if you're watching a documentary with subtitles, it's like one thing. I'd say like the true cost for years and years since what? The 90s when, you know, the NAFTA laws started coming into place and our production was moved overseas and we started hearing about 
the sweatshops. Mm-hmm. I was a teenager then. So that's when I sort of first became aware of the sweatshops. And so you hear about it and you kind of hear that term. And I would say it, it really wasn't until I saw the True Cost documentary that the images were paired up mm-hmm. with that term. Yeah. And that, of course, really determined a direction for Emma and I when we got started with Lady Farmer. That was our entree into it was the sustainable fashion as well. And even though you know about these things, like everybody knows about it. This is mm-hmm. not this is not a secret. Yeah. But still, we're all walking around and most of the clothing that's available, the huge majority of the clothing that people are buying and wearing is a product of this, is a product of what is essentially slavery. I love what you're saying because this is what happens. You take a word and you use it so much. It becomes numb. Hmm. And you're like, sweatshop, sweatshop, sweatshop. Child labor, child labor. Child labor. You know what this also off topic, but this also happens with sexual assault, sexual harassment. Yeah, yeah. We need better words. It's not coming up here. It's not working. Yeah. And that's why like whenever I talk about the garment workers and things like that, I almost never use the term sweatshops. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even garment workers, I usually like to say woman, mother, mm-hmm. because people are not, yeah, like we're just numb to be It's concept. like dehumanizing. It is. Yeah. This- I have a question here. Why are people afraid to call that what it is? Why are we afraid to associate the word slavery with that? Because that is what it is. I think we're being less afraid to. Like, I think people say slavery, but I would even argue that even slavery at this point, people are like, oh, yeah, slaves make your clothes. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I feel yeah. like in, in the last couple of years, the real push to bring you know social equality to light and to discuss it and to discuss the systemic problems that create social equality I still feel like a hesitancy on people's part to really call it what it is. And well, people like slavery. It's very much, or it's modern day slavery. Can we not just call it that? Is there a reason not to? Tell me if there is. I want to know. I really believe that it's a privilege thing. Mm-hmm. And I think what it comes down to is when you're at a place of privilege and you lack empathy, mm-hmm. when someone says the word slavery to you, you think about garment workers specifically, they have a choice. Mm-hmm. And when you have this place of privilege, you've never been in this position, you don't realize you don't have a choice. When this is the only job out there and it's live or die, it's teach your kids or don't, that's Mm -hmm. it. You know, a lot of the garment workers just recently, the Clean Clothes campaign released a little report on this. There's women now who are not getting paid enough. So now on the side of garment worker, now they have to go do prostitution. I mean, there's no choice. They have to do what they have to do. And it's heartbreaking. And if anyone out there would ever say this mother doing prostitution is a choice, she has no choice. And so I think that's the problem with the word slavery is that when used with the wrong person without that lack of empathy, it just goes over. So it, it seemed more like, oh, these aren't really slaves because it's their job. Right. They're not actually owned by another person. And it's a job. It's at least something. Right. That's another thing. Yeah. You run into yeah. that too. Oh, if we stop buying all those clothes, then those people over there won't have their jobs. You hear that too. You hear that a lot too. It's really interesting the way people can excuse their behavior by saying things like that. It's very confusing to me, especially in the fast fashion industry when they're creating 52 seasons a year of endless yeah. clothing. And they're forcing manufacturers to create clothing without even being paid. And then it's bid on. So two factories out of three don't even get paid. Those clothes go in the trash can. Only one factory gets paid. Are you kidding me? These people are not even getting paid. There's like a 70% chance that you don't even get paid for your work. I think that even worsened 
during the pandemic. We have a great episode about that from earlier in the pandemic, actually, about the Pay Up campaign. And it's just insane. I mean, you know, we do this weekly podcast and we talk about this all the time. And it's just so crazy how every few months this specific issue comes up again. How is this not better? More people know about it for sure. Yeah. But why is this still happening? Well, I I still think it's because there's no actionable steps. What are we supposed to do? There's no template. A big goal for our website this year is to just make a whole actionable step page Mm -hmm. where you go there, kind of like Fashion Revolution, but I would say a little bit more SKL community friendly. Sometimes when you go to Fashion Revolution, it's almost so overwhelming. Everyone's like, where do I go? What do I do? And we wanted to make it just for like our community request. Like we want to email pay up. We want to email these companies. We'll give you a template. You send that. You oh, call yeah. this number. Because without the action, it's just sharing and retweeting and yes. it's going nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. We had a great conversation with Elizabeth yeah. Klein several months ago. Mm-hmm. And she made that very clear distinction between there's ethical consumerism where you're making choices about what to buy and so forth, which is very important, but um, really doesn't go far enough. You really have to go get to the action piece. And websites like yours, and we try to include action steps in our almanac as well. And I want to be able to link into what you're doing as well. And what we call the almanac, that's our online membership community, to give people an opportunity to actually do something. But at the same time, you know, this is like easy to say, do something, do something, do something. But also, I think it's important to recognize that the power, I think for a long time, even on this podcast, we've been like, the power is with the consumer. <laughs> Maybe there's like a yeah. negative truth to that. But I'm now figuring out that's so unfair and almost like gaslighty to like put the responsibility totally. on the consumer. And it's what they want you to do. Right. Like, yeah. The brands want. I mean, you're feeding into it. Right? Yeah. Like, oh, man, I did it again. Yeah. <laughs> I think when we say the power is with the consumer, what we're talking about is you can choose not to participate in this. Yeah. You can't. You do have that power. And there are all kinds of excuses for participating anyway. And, you know, some of them are, well, the things cost too much or, well, they will take away those people's jobs. I'll do this when I'm in a more stable phase of my life and I can afford to buy sustainable things. And people have all kinds of things they tell themselves about it. So we do have that kind of power. The power of refusal, I think, is often really overlooked. And following up with that, the power of refusal as an individual is actually, you know, pretty incremental, but it does have to be in a very big way to actually make an impact. And one of the questions that we often ask our guests and we'll ask you, and you've probably already answered it, but do you think that our individual power of refusal on a big enough scale is enough to really make a difference? Or do you think something really is going to have to happen from the top down? So I think it could be yes or no, but I think it depends on what you're talking about with refusal. Yeah. But I would say the smaller picture is refusing to purchase from brand. I think that's a smaller picture because mm-hmm. we have a much bigger problem. Mm-hmm. Right. We have 18 million Americans with shopping addictions, and I was one of them. Mm-hmm. And you cannot stop that unless you get to the core. And the core of that is overconsumption. Mm-hmm. If we refuse to overconsume, that's a different thing because that's overconsuming of everything. Yeah. That's sustainable and unsustainable. That's Forever 21 all the way to Madewell. The problem is we have too much stuff and we need to take responsibility for that. Mm-hmm. If we just think about how different it was with the amount of items we have in our home from 60 years ago to now, it's insane. I yeah. think we're at 15,000 things per household now. And <laughs> it was around like 1,000 at one point. 
Oh, wow. Um, too long ago. What an interesting metric. I've never heard that one. Right? I actually saw it in a movie once and I did research. I was like, that's actually true. Now it was a German movie. That's so true. It's crazy because we're no happier. Right. Yeah. We're less happy. Interesting, right? <laughs> so the power of refusal is not just about, oh, don't buy that brand. They have a bad factory in Vietnam or whatever. Yeah. It's refusing to buy into this system of all these things, all this consumerism that on a, a wider scale, the whole picture, it's really creating all kinds of problems, environmental, yeah. social, So health. it's refusing capitalism. My favorite thing is just stop putting shit you don't need. Yeah. Just yeah. stop. Then the deeper question is like, what defines what we need? And like, that's true. And know? it's all up to you. It's yeah. all up to you. And it's also really coming to what truly makes you happy. If another muffin makes you happy, you get that damn muffin. If you're just getting <laughs> that to prove something, if you're just getting that muffin to say, I can have this muffin, things like that. Or like, oh, I saw Sarah have a muffin. I think I'm going to get it too. Yeah. I don't even like this muffin, but I think I'm going to get the muffin. Yeah. We're so many crazy reasons that we buy things. Comparison, yeah. self-esteem, mm-hmm. greed, trying to show off, pretend we have money when we don't have money mm-hmm. or show off the money that we do have. That's that need. And I really do think that we are all smart enough and capable enough. I mean, our brains are so filled with information and knowledge that we have so much opportunity for growth. We can know this answer. And I think a lot of us just don't want to because we're afraid of missing out. We're afraid of not fitting in. We're afraid of not picking off those boxes. And um, I just find that when you really get to the core, which is very hard, it's Mm -hmm. not easy. Mm -hmm. But when you do, you just start realizing like, wow, I'm a lot happier without all of those things that I thought I needed to prove myself. Yeah. Now you have two small children. Yes. And I would say in the phase of life when I was raising my three, that phenomenon of being surrounded by stuff was at its height. So how do you handle that? You live and work this and you're teaching this. So tell us how you handle that with little kids and how you instruct them and form their ideas about this. Yeah. So we've always lived the same way as I started this when they were born. So we were very intent on this. When we first started, we had no money. So that was easy. When you have no money, you can't buy anything. And over here, they don't give out credit cards like they do in the U.S. So over here, if you have no money, you have no money. End of story, you cannot take out a card. So when we had the kids, I had no problem. Grandmother sent me secondhand clothes for them. And that was that. I breastfed as long as I could. When we started them on formula after I couldn't fulfill their needs anymore, that really hit us financially pretty hard because it's very expensive here for the formula. So that kept me at a total minimal with my kids. I cloth life for them and everything to save money not for sustainability. It was just to save money. As a twin mom, I probably would have used disposable if I could have afforded it. And I'll be totally honest with that. Looking back now, I'm grateful that I can't say for though. I really loved the experience after I did it. When I got a little bit older and we had more money, that's really when we had to buckle down because we realized quickly when the money came in, we were spending more money, which is mm-hmm. silly if you think about it, but it's also not. I think that's the way a lot of people who don't have money, you kind of look at it once they do. And there's actually a really good book on that, a whole cycle of that thinking. I forgot the name, but maybe I'll give it to you later for the notes. Yeah. We had that struggle for a while. And then we started finding ourselves living paycheck to paycheck, even though we had way more money. And we're like, we need to figure this out. So we started a minimalist plan and I started it and I did it with capsule wardrobes. And we had very little clothes at this time. Martin still has very little clothes. I have more than he does. But with the kids, I did a whole capsule wardrobe for my children. And I was like, okay, my laundry cycle and hang drying them 
you're both going to need, you know, 11 pairs of pants, different sweats, different jeans, corduroy, whatever, all in there. And then, you know, like 20 shirts, half long sleeve, half short. And I tested it each year. And so then if I noticed that, you know, the wear and tear was too much on these with this number, I would just increase it to about four or five. And this worked great. My kids are now five years old and they have one itty bitty tiny little chest with these little pull out like plastic buckets. Mm -hmm. And it's just one box of pants, one box of shirts and then underwear on top. And they have a tiny little like TP closet thing that's a wooden closet. And it just has like two jackets, two rain jackets, snow pants, very minimal. And it works fantastic. And I never have a mess of laundry like mm, I used wow. to. Yeah. It's so easy. And they dress themselves like they know where everything is, all at their height level. And then for Martin and myself, the way I kept us at our capsule was really funny. They don't have closets here in Italy. So like your apartment doesn't come with a closet. And everyone lives in an apartment unless you're really rich and live in a house. So you have an apartment. And so you have to go buy a closet. And I couldn't find one anywhere that was small enough because they're so big. I'm like, who needs a closet this big? Coming from a Chicago room, which is, and my closet was huge. I ended up going to Ikea and finding a little closet that was like three and a half feet wide and two feet deep. And that has been our closet for the past five years and we share it. So I have the left side and he has the right side and that's it. And that's all we have. And then we have a little tiny chest drawer for our underwear and bras and his workout stuff. And that's it. And if it's full, it's full. And if we can't like fit something in, then we have to take something out and sell it, not donate it. We have to sell it. Uh And that's how we live that way. For our house, it's just, I love bare walls. I love bare space. My kids love to like, you know, run around the house. And so I think the only thing that's even remotely luxurious is this work desk that I'm talking to you on. Mm -hmm. Everything else is very much like kid-friendly and just wooden blocks. And So it sounds like you've been able to design, well, a lot of out of necessity, but you've been able to design this very like kind of like minimalist capsule with beyond necessity, also just really sticking to the constraints of space. And like, I know you you said your apartment's small. Maybe you could have found a bigger closet or another chest and squeezed it in there. You know, like there's ways you could like make more storage for yourself, I'm sure, but you're specifically choosing not to. And then also that's so interesting Mm -hmm. that, first of all, I love that you sell it instead of donate it. It's just so easy to be like, oh, I'll donate it. And then like, but selling it is like, takes so many steps. It's such a pain in the butt. <laughs> yeah. And so in a way, I'm like having a light bulb moment because I always say I'm going to sell things. And then, yeah. And then I'm like, oh, it's so many steps. And I feel better if I donate it anyways. But it's an excuse to be a little less conscious about stuff. Bringing in, even exactly. from the thrift store. Yeah. It's yeah. easy to fill up the bag and put it on the porch yeah. for the people to fill Absolutely. up. Absolutely. And a lot of that stuff, unfortunately, yeah, it doesn't even probably doesn't ends up in the landfill. Yeah. Or no. it goes to another place and another pile that goes to another pile. And I know in the States, it's become a problem that the countries... Yeah, then we ship them to other countries. They don't want them anymore. <laughs> they won't take it's them. It's crazy. Yeah. I haven't been able to find out exactly what happens to the European ones. We have donation boxes all over our town. I'm hoping for the best that, that I see people drop stuff off all the time, but I have a yeah. bad feeling, you know. Like, yeah. Let me tell you about what it's like to drift to sleep on a 100% natural wool pillow sourced from regenerative farms wrapped in a lovingly handmade organic cotton pillowcase. Oh wait, I can't. I think it's just something you're going to have to try for yourself. 
Holy Lamb Organics is proud to carry on a centuries-old tradition of making beautiful textile products by hand. Combining heritage methods with pristine natural and organic materials and sustainable business practices, they bring a dedication to healthy living and the environment. Everything Holy Lamb does reflects their devotion to the planet and its inhabitants. From their supply chain to their manufacturing processes to their facilities management, nothing happens without considering the environmental impact. Most importantly, they're also dedicated to fair labor practices, secure working conditions, diversity, and inclusion. From the farm to the mill to their partner manufacturers, everyone shares the same high ideals of a safe, respectful workplace and environmentally conscious methods. Making good products enables them to do good work. Every time we order something from Holy Lamb Organics, we're proud to support a small town made in America company. You can find Holy Lamb Organics in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. For additional marketplace discounts, you can join the Almanac, our member-supported community platform. Find Holy Lamb Organics products including pillows, sheets, natural wool comforters, and more in the bedding section of the Lady Farmer Marketplace at www.ladyfarmer.com. Another big light bulb in what you just said, too, is the laundry. I currently don't have a family to do laundry for, but I have friends that do. And I see, you know, on my Instagram feed, particularly in Instagram stories, moms loving to post about, you know, it's a thing. Everyone's doing laundry endlessly. But imagine (laughs) what if actually you didn't have to because you didn't have that many clothes. I love that concept. I have a really funny real life post that people were so pissed off, but in like a funny way. Yeah. The real was, you don't need new clothes. You just have to do your damn laundry. And yeah. everyone's like, oh my God, that's true. I was like, I know. Because even with me and my minimalist stuff, my whites only get washed once a month because it takes so long for that little basket to fill up with whites. And so I remember I was freezing. I was like, I really want my sweater. I was like, oh, maybe I should just like get another sweater for a secondhand shop. And I went to the laundry room and I was like, it's right there in the basket. I was like, well, wow. you just need to your damn laundry. Yeah. Like, get to work. <laughs> That's so accurate. It just sounds like you've really been able to cultivate a system and stick to it. And I think, do you walk people through these things on your website and in your work? I mean, how do you communicate how to get from A to B to people? So the website is still pretty new. So we're still creating the ebooks right now, but we're going to have ebooks for all this stuff. Wow. Shopping addictions, and we're going to have therapists come on. We're going to do all the things, but it's still very new. But on our social page, we've been doing this for a while. And I had a severe shopping addiction when I was in the military because Mm. I was always deployed Mm -hmm. and I had nothing to do. Like we would fly 12 hours and then we would be left alone for 12 hours. But, you know, you have no loved ones. Your friends are off either flying or at the gym or something. And you're Mm -hmm. like, I need connection. And the time distance and everything, I would just start shopping. Mm -hmm. And when I would get home from deployment, my apartment would just be full of boxes and Instead of being happy, I was always like, crap, now I have all this stuff and I don't even know if it fits. So I use that experience on my social media and I talk people through it because I don't want anyone to feel that you can't partake even if you have the shopping addiction. Even to this day, even though I am a minimalist, even though I work my butt off, I always tell people that I think the reason I work so hard is because I'm fighting the shopping addiction. Because instead of going on, even though I would probably choose Best Year Collective or something to do my shopping, Mm -hmm. I would still be over consuming. I would still be just numbing my pain through scrolling and not necessarily a pain, but like a a boringness or like I'm bored or I'm lonely. Yeah. Yeah. Fill something. Yeah. Exactly. So instead of filling that with the shopping, now I fill that with proactive work, Mm -hmm. activism or 
even better, now I feel that time with a bath <laughs> or a walk. You know, I think before I felt like I always just had to do something. And for some reason, shopping was a doing. Oh, totally. And it's transactional and it's productive. Yes. It feels productive. Yeah, it does feel productive. You feel like you're on top of the world, but you're not. You're, you're just hurting yourself. And so I love using that experience. I just think a lot of people have a lot of shame around it. And I don't yeah. think you need to. I think it's it's something that's been marketed to us since we were born. Yes. If you've made it this far without a shopping addiction, I don't know how the hell you did it. Yeah. I'm so happy for you, but I don't get it because yeah. I wasn't there. Like I had a whole different life than that because growing up shopping was like the prime time. Shopping for new clothes for school, shopping mm-hmm. for Christmas outfits. That was like the best time ever. It's really hard to break that cycle. Even like, it's still hard for me to drive fast McDonald's and not stop because those Happy Meals made me so damn happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to this day, right now, last weekend, I'm a little sad. Oh, I'll go thrift shopping. It's like so, it makes me so happy. When I grew up in the 60s and 70s, shopping was a main form of entertainment, especially, you know, when you got to be like a teenager. That was what you did. Oh, yeah. And even before the mall, I predate malls, <laughs> our parents would drop us off downtown, little Main Street where all the stores were. Mm-hmm. And we'd have our little pocket of money. and You'd just walk up and down the streets looking for stuff to buy. Really? Yeah, right. You're just looking for stuff to buy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was just, we were having a fun Saturday afternoon. That was what you did. Yeah. Isn't it crazy to think about it though? Like, I yeah. Know. Who marketed this? Who started this? Also, <laughs> even our beloved Instagram. <laughs> I recently also got on the TikTok train. I love TikTok. I, I'm so bad at TikTok now. I know, me too. I <laughs> wish I was better. I don't understand I don't it. know if you've had this thought, but if I had TikTok when I was in high school, I would own that. But I would like, I was the one like making funny dance, you know, like that was me. And I just feel like I'm a little like so right. old now and I have too much self-consciousness that I've built up over the years. Totally. <laughs> totally but anyways, I, I heard someone on TikTok making fun of Instagram and they were like, it's just QVC. And like, you don't even realize it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it is. It it's is. this activity that, you know, we think of QVC or like, we think it's ridiculous infomercials. Like who even watches those? They're crazy. No, we literally actively voluntarily open our phones and go on this shopping app that's like feeding us yeah it is like a shopping app oh my gosh it's really hard for our page we try to do the absolute minimum of sponsored posts as Mm -hmm. we feel just so crappy doing that yeah and i don't care who the brand is i don't care if you're saving the world for some reason as soon as i click that little button that says sponsored like I know I just have a bad feeling I really Mm -hmm. wish Instagram didn't go that way no yeah not to mention that unless you're pouring literally hundreds of thousands of dollars and you're probably not even getting your money you know it's like not even a good purchase like totally I feel the same way you do but I also feel bad because I'm like oh this is like money I'm spending that I'm maybe getting a slight return probably not exactly I know so gross it's hard it is it is (laughs) and the worst is like when you're having a bad day already and like you already think the world is ending yeah. And then you go on Instagram and all of your favorite influencers are selling something. You're like, damn it. Yeah. Yeah. I can't trust anybody. At the same time, I do want my content creators to get paid for their stuff. But I really feel like Instagram could have done it differently. They could have been like a YouTube. You know, yeah. they could have paid you for your work. And yeah, not had somebody else pay you to pay you for your work. That's yeah. so silly to me. Wasn't Why it? They did that. It was sold off at some point. So it really did change direction, I think, in a certain yeah. point in time. I don't know when that was. But yeah. So yeah. do any of y'all ever have the experience of going on Instagram and literally it's a feeling like somewhere in my gut that says there's nothing really here for you. Why are you here? <laughs> yeah. 
It's almost like a voice oh my in God. my head. So I have our main page, yeah. which we had too many people that were following, too many people. So we started a page just for the website to just post blog posts. It's the only one I go on now because we're only following like 50 people. And I love when I get to the part yeah. where Instagram sends me a check mark and it says, you're all caught up. We have nothing else for you. I'm like, oh my God, it's the lottery. <laughs> this is amazing. Like I only scrolled for two seconds and I'm done. It was heaven. I've never seen that message. What does that tell you? <laughs> yeah. The, so you just follow fewer people. I guess that's it. And they're just literally showing you. Or just start a new account just for you and your own personal health. I feel like business pages, like you're going to get just too much. And yeah. people always change direction. So like one day they're promoting this and the next day it's like, wait, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. I always recommend getting your own small page where you follow like minimum amount and oh, mm -hmm. enjoy the scrolling there because you're not going to see all that craziness. Yeah. That's yeah. a really good suggestion. I have a good friend who's a floral designer and she's like super picky about who she follows, but she has a pretty big audience. I think that's interesting. And she won't follow any other floral people. She won't follow anyone like in her field because that just like messes me up. And then I'm not sure yeah. if it's coming from me. I've always thought that was really interesting. I mean, for years, I followed nobody but my own community members. And cool. then I hired an assistant and she's like, we don't tell anyone in the sustainability except for like your friends. Yeah. And I was like, I don't want to. It's going to mess me up. Well, she disagreed. Yeah. So she followed them all. And now I'm so overwhelmed. Yeah. And I always feel bad. And I feel like I'm not doing enough. And I'm like, I can't scroll on this page anymore. Yeah. And so I'm happily on the other page now. It's too much. Yeah. Oh I totally agree. And it messes with your creative. Yeah. Because when you have all the input, when you're inputting all the time, especially in the same types of things you're trying to output them, you're not able to output. I don't know. It's it's overwhelming. It's so true. You know, sustainability is about our mental space as well. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. That's been like a really good undercurrent. This whole conversation, I feel like kind of yeah. goes back to like, what is the root of the problem? And it's really we have to just totally change our thinking and not Absolutely. even our consumer behaviors, but our, our thinking and our addictions and our consumption of just stimulus and yeah. Yeah. content. It's funny, like everybody's out there trying to produce content. And it's like, well, there's a lot of content out yeah. there. <laughs> oh, my God. I swear <laughs> the best sustainable thing I did for my brain yeah. with Instagram was recycling content. Why am I recycling things in my real life and not recycling things right. in my oh, social life? Yeah. That's brilliant. It's such a good idea. I'm <laughs> yeah. still a little bit sick now, but I was sick for the whole last month. Like, I don't know what I have. I don't have Corona. I got tested by it. So sick. Couldn't get on the film. I was coughing. Like I couldn't, I was like wheezing and I just recycled stuff from like mm -hmm. the past two years. And it was amazing. Mm -hmm. Amazing. I was like, I don't even have to get out of bed. This is great. I know. <laughs> it's so cool. We've recently started doing similar because we sort of, at one point we realized we're like, wait, we're putting on a podcast. We have like a online community. We do the Instagram. Like we have all these things and we're literally doing new things every week. And then the problem is at some point it is too much for the consumer. And so it's like, it's actually a service to them to just like redirect them to things that already exist. You know, that's like, did you see this? And like, yeah, it's not exactly. a bad thing. No one. Yeah. I'm curious, Danielle, what you think of slow living and what does it mean to you? And do you practice it? Slow living. You know, I have like a couple problems with the word slow living just because I don't find it accessible to everybody especially the ones that I think we're fighting the most for. So that would be the garment workers or anyone who's struggling. They don't have that choice. So slow living for me is a term that I feel like is used a lot to promote a beautiful, 
minimalistic, tea drinking, self-loving life. And that sounds so great, but I think everyone needs to have that option. Mm -hmm. That's what kills me sometimes. Do I live a slow life? Oh, absolutely. And I'm so privileged to do so. And Mm -hmm. I make that choice every day. It's just really hard for me to really promote that and Mm -hmm. talk about it too much because I feel like it brings a sort of shame to those who are working their asses off Mm -hmm. and who can't slow down because some people really can't. And, you know, I know many of them personally. And when you bring up the word slow living, they will look at you like you just stab them in the back. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? But for us personally, we're very, very privileged to to be able to live that life. And I would say mostly because of where we live, our small village, we have free healthcare. Mm. We don't need a lot of money over here to live that lifestyle. And over here, people don't work from the hours of 12 to three. Everyone takes a siesta. So it's not even open. You can't even work if you wanted to. So slow living is a way of life here. It's pushed on you. I mean, you don't have to sleep from 12 to 3 to go for a run or something, but you definitely have the option. So I love that about where we live. And we made a conscious decision to live here. But again, not everyone can do that. And I'm just so grateful that we have this opportunity. Yeah, I know back in Chicago, I didn't really know what slow living was in Chicago. It's very fast paced. Did I have the opportunity? Sure. But I never took the chance in Chicago. I was always go, go, go. Mm -hmm. I felt like there was always a a fire lit on my butt. Like I always had to just keep going Mm -hmm. to survive. So I'm very happy to be out of that. Yeah, that's what I think about slow living. Yeah, it's a hard one for me. I love it, but I also... It's hard. Yeah. I know. Yeah. It might be one of those words that needs another word. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, the way we talk about slow living and try to communicate the concept is to be conscious of your choices. And hopefully if enough people really assimilate that into their daily life, like conscious of the consumer choices, conscious of how they spend their resources and their time and all of that, then it would have an, the overall effect of, and again, individual efforts are incremental in, in terms of the huge picture right. we're talking about here. But maybe, you know, move the collective consciousness in a direction that would help those that actually do not have the choice. Like we're talking about the garment totally. workers. Like, yeah. Conscious yeah. choice is even a privilege. So in a way, it's... Absolutely. I think also it's so important to... The privilege of choice is also responsibility of choice. And if you have privilege and you are not privy to the responsibility that comes with that, that's also maybe part of our work yeah. as educators yeah. in this space. Yeah. You know, obviously we're speaking to people who have the choice. Totally. To make these choices. And if you don't have the choice, then you have literally more important things to worry about, like feeding yourself Mm -hmm. and your family. But yeah, Yeah, totally. In other words, if you are in a situation to make these choices and you're not, then why not? We want to know. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Well, living, I think the greatest thing to come out of it is empathy. I think when you really start to slow down, and I think that's what we're lacking a lot in this world, but I think when you really slow down and start to give yourself love, then you can finally seek out giving love to others because I feel like we have a true lack of self-love in our Western world, that's for sure. I can't speak for the rest. I know what I know of our world and there's a big lack there and it's sad. And I feel like we're worried about so many other things than what we should be worrying about. And I think that when we get our self-love down, then we can really have empathy and start fighting for those who have zero choice. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that includes, you know, care for the planet as well. Like, you you know, care for yourself. I was talking to this guy in Las Vegas. He was a big dude in the corner 11 years ago or something. And we were just talking about littering. He was homeless and he was just sitting on the street. Homeless, but like young, like, I don't know if he was just sitting around playing music or something. But we were talking about littering and it just came up and he was saying how he doesn't care that he litters. Like he doesn't, doesn't matter. And it pissed me off a little bit. And I was very rebellious younger one. I was kind of getting on him for it. 
He was straight up, looked me right in the eyes. He said, why would I give a crap about littering if I can't even give a crap about myself? Wow. And I was like, wow, that is the most vulnerable thing I have ever heard. And wise. Yeah. <laughs> so wise. Yeah. So wise. I was like, that is so truthful. Like, wow. Yeah, that's impressive. All our outward behaviors and projections are really reflections of what's inside us. As within, really? so without. So. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, boy, we're getting pretty philosophical. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So what does the good dirt mean to you? And you can answer that any way you want, literally or metaphorically or whatever so, comes to mind. I saw this on the, the paper and it made me laugh because I love dirt. We are a dirt loving <laughs> family. I don't know who would ever call dirt bad, but I've always thought dirt to be magically good. But it's dirty. Um, we had a little garden outside and I was getting it all prepared. It was April when they were about a month old. And we were already in their feet in that dirt. We're like, get on in there. Mm-hmm. You got to get your, like, that dirt in there. And my boys are, to this day, they come home full of dirt. They've been to forest school, always rolling around dirt or mud or something. And we just find it to be absolutely magical. Whenever I'm having a bad day, I will literally just stick my hands in dirt. I feel better. I will do a meditation with my hands in dirt or just in my hands. For some reason, I'm maybe because I'm an Aquarius, I'm not sure, but I'm off floating and I always need to ground myself. So to me, dirt is everything. It's what keeps me stable. And yeah. Where does that come from? You grew up in the city and... Yeah, no, I don't know. It's such a good question because I have no idea. I've always been like that. I was always like the weirdo barefoot girl. I remember when I was like 12, my brother's like, you have hobbit feet from walking on the rock so much. I was like, that's great. Like I could like climb a mountain. And yeah. so I call my kids feet habit feet now because their feet are beautiful. They only wear barefoot shoes or barefoot. One of our sponsors is the Wildling Shoes uh, oh, Company. Yeah. Oh, So they, they have these beautiful, wide, big feet and they can they can hike anything with their feet. And they're, they're just, wow, great yeah. walking feet. Oh, that's wonderful. And most people don't realize that your feet are supposed to be wider at the top than they are at the bottom. Yeah, And just think how many years women have been forced to do the opposite. I know. <laughs> to the fashions. I think when I, before I had the kids, I was a size eight. And now I'm a size nine and a half. And I've only worn barefoot shoes. And I believe it's because my military boots and my gym shoes were all in size too small. Mm. Yeah, I just thought that's like how shoes were supposed to be worn. I was like, my feet kind of hurt. I was like, ah, but I guess that's what it is. No, they was completely wrong. And every year that I wore the barefoot shoes, my feet would get wider and wider. That's crazy. I'm going to look up the wilding shoes. Yeah. Oh, they're wonderful. They're so wonderful. It's all we wear. I think I have six pairs and I just cycle through them all throughout the year. And you're a minimalist. <laughs> I know. But six so pairs of only wildling shoes, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I get it about the shoes. Yeah. I, no, when you find something that works, I mean. Yes. Oh my God. They're so great. They're so great. I love them. I actually got all my kids' school teachers on them too. So they're, all their teachers wear wildling shoes. Oh, yeah. well, you said they go to forest school. So that kind of tracks. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 That's they're so cool. Tell us a little bit about forest school. So the forest school is up in the mountains. We live, I guess you could say like the bottom of the mountain and then we're surrounded 360. So if you just go about 10 minutes away and the mountains are like on top of us, they're very close. I mean, it's... Mm-hmm. Nothing like I've ever seen in the U.S., just on top of us. So just 10 minutes away, you just go straight up, literally straight up the mountain. And that's where the forest school is. And the view from the top is of just everything. The whole town, like three towns over, gorgeous. The sun hits it. So even in winter, a lot of the kids are barefoot because oh. it's so hot up there from the sun. 
even when it's snowing. It's really, really cool. It has a yurt and then just a like a, a wooden cottage. But the kids pretty much play in the river and there's free roaming cows and there's a oh. the, it's really a beautiful, beautiful place. Oh, oh my god. Wonderful. Is it like it's really cool. They even have a horn that they blow when they have lunch. It's like the like the Lord of the Rings horn. <laughs> That's so sweet. Is it like Waldorf type thing or you could say so. There's it's made by the kids with wood. And mm. I think what surprised me the most is it's all nature. And the first day that my kids had school there, they were already sawing with the real saw, hammering wow. with the real hammer, doing everything. Oh my gosh. They had like the sharpest knives. But the teachers were like, no, you just have to teach them and observe. But really the little wooden place is very small and it's only for bad weather. They are outside the whole time. It would snow so bad that we couldn't drive up. And it was a good five minute drive. Now that's a long time if you think for walking. Five minute drive up. We would drop our little three-year-old boys at the bottom and their teachers would take their hands. There was like 12 kids and they would just hike all the way to the top of the school. And then by the time I picked them up, forest school is only four hours long because it's very intense, very intense physically. So only four hours for forest school here. Four hours later, the snow would be melted and I would pick them up and they would just be finishing their walk. And I was like, Damn, this is insane. So they spent the like, whole day walking to school. Wow. Yep. And you always pack them with snacks and things like that. Oh, so they would stop worse. and they would eat. They would forage. They would have berries because the forest school teachers are foraging masters. And they, the things I learned, it was so cool there. Yeah. Really, really cool. I want to go there. I know. That's what I said. <laughs> they let me go for the first week and they're like, okay, we think that you need to go now. And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Oh, how magical is that? That just, that just sounds yeah. so magical. I wish, I, oh, Emma, I wish you were that age again. I, I wish see. I was four. Yeah. <laughs> well, not really. It's so cool. <laughs> so Danielle, is there anything else? First of all, this has been so wonderful. This is yeah. just like chatting with an old friend. Thank you so much yeah, for joining I love us. This. I'm so happy I did it. Is there anything that you'd like to leave with our audience? Anything that you want people to understand about the work that you're doing or anything else you just want to talk about that we didn't cover? Really, I just want to say that if you're just looking for like a friend to help you through this time and it's anything to do with sustainable living or sustainable fashion, our community is there. If it's not me, it's a member of our community. We've created some really close bonds and we communicate all the time and they're just so fantastic. And I always tell people, yeah, I may be the face of it, but the community runs it. And they're so wonderful. Yeah. So we would just love to have anyone who wants to come. You do not need to be perfect. Honestly, the opposite of perfect is probably what we're looking for <laughs> because nobody needs to be perfect. You just have to want to try, want to learn, want to get inspired. And it's really it. So tell us about where they can find you and all that good stuff. So you can find us online at sustainablykindliving.com. And then we have two social pages on Instagram, Sustainably Kind Living, and then Susty Kind Living with a Y. And then you can find us on Facebook at Sustainably Kind Living, or you could follow my page. It's not my personal, personal one, but my main page, um, Danielle Alvarado on Facebook as well. We are on TikTok, but I wouldn't waste your time. We're the same. <laughs> I put up like two videos. Oh, yeah. I think, yeah, I think I was on a roll for like, Two weeks and I just totally forgot about it. <laughs> Not my place. And Pinterest too. You can find us on Pinterest. We have a really great Pinterest manager who runs that. So if you want to just head to the blog post, that's a good place to go to. And that's just sustainably kind living as well. Do you ever teach courses? Or are they on your website or anything like that? So yeah. we are creating 12 ebooks. So every single month we're going to have a new ebook and it's going to be free. 
with an option to donate if you want to, zero pressure. I would much rather you hit zero than struggle in any way whatsoever. The donations pretty much just go to hiring more writers and more creators for the website. But each book is going to be a sort of a guide to something. This month, we're doing a color season analysis where you can find which colors actually match your skin tone. So you stop purchasing things that you don't need. You stick with your color palette. Next month, is going to be capsule wardrobe. The next month after that is greenwashing, how to avoid greenwashing. And we're just going to keep going down the line with different guides to help people. That sounds so exciting. I can't wait to follow along. Generous of you with all of that information. Yeah, that's incredible. Really, really. I think, I really think it needs to be free. I'm tired of this nonsense. Yeah. It just needs to be free. It's amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Danielle. Thank you. That's so wonderful. Yes. I really enjoyed it so much. It was so nice to meet you. calling in and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at We Are Lady Farmer. That's We Are Lady Farmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye.